Women on the Rise is supported by The Riveter, a modern union for working women, offering content, community, and co-working spaces, all designed with a focus on women and work. I've been a member of The Riveter since nearly the beginning and have proudly watched them expand from Seattle to cities around the country. You might even remember that their CEO and founder, Amy Nelson, was my very first guest on this podcast. Countless collaborations and friendships have come from my kitchen conversations and post-event chats with my fellow Riveters, both women and men. The Riveter believes that equity and opportunity should be a reality, not a promise. Visit www.theriveter.co to learn more. And by Armoire. Do you love variety but hate the clutter and expense of new clothes? That is totally me. So I just signed up for Armoire, a clothing rental service for today's boss lady. Armoire gives me access to designer clothes I can exchange on my schedule for a flat monthly fee. I get access to a guilt-free flow of new clothes without the hassle of shopping or dry cleaning. You can ask anyone. I hate shopping. Women on the Rise listeners can try Armoire today for $100 off your first month using code WOTR100. That's WOTR100. Visit www.armoire.style to get started. When we talk about our mission and our objectives with Sarisa, we don't just say it's to help grow more women leaders. We say it's to help women leaders achieve and thrive in positions of leadership. And that's a really important distinction. And so all of our mentees going through the program, we have tools up front that help them think much more holistically about not just their career progression, but how satisfied they are with a whole range of topics that you might associate with self-care. Welcome to Women on the Rise. I'm executive coach and lifestyle expert, Lara Dolch. And each week I talk to thriving women about the practical self-care strategies they use to fuel their success and pursue what's most important to them in their careers and lives. We get real about topics like healthy eating, exercise, sleep, stress, time management, happiness, mindset, and productivity, while busting myths about work-life balance and being perfect along the way. My goal each week is to uncover new insights that you can immediately apply to your life to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. Hey, podcast listeners, you probably know what I'm going to ask first. Have you rated or reviewed the podcast yet? If so, thank you so much. If not, please take a moment to do that now. It truly, truly helps people find the show. And we're trying to get to 75 or more five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts by the end of the year. I'd really appreciate your help. Thank you. This week, we're talking about helping women not only lead, but thrive. Thriving is kind of a buzzword these days, at least in the personal development space. I mean, Ariana Huffington named a book and a company Thrive, in fact. But what does thriving mean for you personally? Do you even know? Think of a time in your life when you felt like you were firing on all cylinders, when things felt easier and more joyful. What was going on in your life? How were you spending your time? Who were you spending your time with? What were you doing for work and play? How were you taking care of your body, mind, and spirit? Answers to those questions will give you some clues about what thriving looks like for you and what you can do now to feel that way again if you're not. They'll also give you clues about what you can do to be a better leader because leading isn't just about expertise, gravitas, or charisma. It's also about showing up as the best version of yourself with body, mind, and spirit firing on all cylinders. 
My guest this week understands the many facets of effective leadership, and she's building a company to support women leaders on all fronts. Anna Robinson is CEO and founder of Sarisa, a tech-enabled and research-based mentorship platform for aspiring women leaders. Anna launched Sarisa in 2018 with the mission of closing the global leadership gap for women. We talked about why Anna believes that mentorship of women is a key piece of getting more women into leadership positions, the shocking feedback that Anna received from a male senior executive about why mentoring women was great for them, but not for him, why Anna doesn't think you can disentangle self-care from conversations about leadership development, and how Cerise's mentee population is echoing that perspective, and how Anna's first pregnancy and a health scare in her 30s changed her personal approach to her own self-care. Enjoy my conversation with Anna. So Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, all the way from Austin, Texas. Well, and it's funny because for my listeners, you and I literally just met last week. And, you know, I was so intrigued by your journey and uh, your current company. And, you know, that I was like, you need to be on the podcast, please. <laughs> so thank you for playing along. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. But let's start here. You know, I was telling you offline a little bit ago about, you know, I often get questions from women who are earlier in their career path about, you know, how the women I talk to, how successful women got to where they are. So keeping that in mind, I'd love to start with what does success even mean to you personally? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think my answer now is pretty different than what it would have been 10 years ago and different than what it would have been, you know, from that 10 years before. So to me now, I would, you know, success for me, for sure now, I would primarily define it around the impact on other people, much more societal level. If I go back 20 years coming out of college, it was probably similar, except at that time, I didn't realize or hadn't thought through the need to be in a have some kind of power or influence in order to make that difference. It was more of that kind of naive do-gooder mindset. Whereas now, a lot of the reason I have worked to get to where I have in my career was so that I could then make the choices through my career, through philanthropy, to have that impact on other people, even on the team we have here and helping develop folks um, at our company, as well as through our mission at Sterisa and then the things I do much more broadly in our community. I mean, you know, I don't want to make it sound too Pollyanna-ish now. It's all about other people. For sure, there's a, there's a big piece of making sure that that is balanced with providing for my family. I think between my husband and I and where we are in our careers and this stage in our lives, we're a little bit over that hump that we have the luxury to make some other choices or at least sort of over time balance in and out what, what we're more focused on, whether it's continuing to build wealth to provide for our family or working on the missions that are most important to us. And you know that it's interesting, the really honest part is there's still an ego-driven piece of it. I think both my co-founder and I, when we were talking about working together, we both had a really honest conversation of where primarily we want to have success. And for us, that means building a company that is changing the lives of, of women and helping them get into positions of leadership. But we both felt there's a little piece of still wanting to prove that we could build something really successful in terms of how that would be externally recognized and that admitting that that is an ego-driven part of it. But that for sure is still there a little bit. That's an interesting point. And I don't know that that's necessarily all bad. What do you think about that? I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, it's, I think it's good to be self-aware of it. And as we talk about, it plays for us into 
you know, so right now we're planning to do a more formal um, fundraising round this fall. And as we're talking about what kind of investors we would be most excited to work with, we also have really honest conversations about what do we want what do we want the company to be, but and what are we willing to do personally? And th- there are trade-offs to be made, both in terms of trade-offs for our lifestyle that might come out of what choice you make to go from an investing path, but also not building the kind of scale of company that we'd be as excited to be a part of. So, it, it, I mean, I, I try not to overly judge myself for having that, but just acknowledge that that, that piece is still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think anytime you build something, I mean, I, I can relate to that for sure. Where, yeah, it's like, you know, there's this piece of it that is ego driven. And I think in my experience, it's like, that's part of what, you know, as much as the impact piece of it drives things forward a little bit. And to your point, like being kind of aware of it and, and understanding that, you know, you're not going to get the kind of full value, not basing your value on that, I think is sort of where I've come to. Like if I, you know, if I look to everyone else externally to give myself value, that's where I find that I run into trouble. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely does. And I, I think through what would happen if this was a flaming disaster and in 12 months or three years, Teresa didn't exist and it had gone bankrupt or whatever that, you know, the disaster story looks like, I still have no regrets about doing it because I feel like we're trying to do the right thing. And I, I, I am at a point where I'm a little bit past mostly caring what people think about me. And the thing that I'll be most disappointed about if that happens, it will be less about the ego and more about the vision we had of helping so many people, like that will be the piece that's harder to get our heads around if it's not successful as we really had hoped that we'd be able to build something that would have really transformed people's lives. Yeah, no, I totally get that. What, you know, thinking back, like rewinding a little bit in terms of how you got to this place, you know, because you obviously had a a corporate career prior to this and and also worked with another startup. What experiences in your career or your life kind of shaped your definition of success and, and kind of do you think led to where you are? You know, it's such a deep question. You could go back to so many different places. I think there's probably three or four main places that have shaped the definition of success and and probably therefore the choices I've made. So even if I go back to my childhood, right? So my parents were, they were were fine. We're pretty middle-class, whatever you want to call it. But they definitely had financial concerns. And that was a, a loud theme throughout my upbringing. And so I think part of that has made me more risk averse. It's probably why it took me until I was nearly 40 to be you know, brave enough to start a company when the risk of failing would have less catastrophic uh, implications for, for my, my family's life. Then stepping forward from that, I took a gap year between high school and going to college. And I went and worked in East Africa, teaching at a secondary school and working at a center for street children. And that f- for sure defined and really instilled in me a sense of social justice that went much deeper than I think what a lot of 18 year olds have. And I knew from that point on that at some point in my life, I would come back to working with people in a way that was really going to transform their lives. You know, at the time I thought that was going to be my whole career. And then I realized I needed to go get some leadership business skills, something I could actually offer so that it wasn't just handing out food packages, but I could actually, you know, have more of an impact in the world. But that was definitely a defining piece But after that, I ended up going to McKinsey in management consulting, a pretty demanding professional experience, both in terms of the excellence of the work that's expected, as well as just the raw horsepower and hours that you're putting in. You know, that definitely helped me understand another level of what success means in terms of professional achievement and even what excellence looks like, I think, was really defined a lot by my experience there. 
Yeah, no, I'm sure. Well, and I love that you brought up the fact that even if your initial sort of driver is an impact in terms of social justice and that sort of thing, that having those business skills and the ability to, you know, frame that in a, in a different way helps you have that impact. Like, I, I, I think that's really important for people to see that they're not mutually exclusive, that you can merge the two and, you know, that it actually makes you more effective. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen that play out as you've been building Sarisa? Yeah, I mean, gosh, in so many different places. And I think it will continue to evolve as Teresa grows in the level of sophistication and complexity of what we're trying to build. I mean, for, you know, there's, there's, there's a few different levels of it. So from the very beginning, even being able to just structure the nature of the problem and define a path to getting there, right? That is a classic kind of skill set you learn in any kind of problem solving. It doesn't even have to be in the for-profit world, but having that kind of skill set of learning to look at different problems, find out ways to tackle them, figure out how you go have a hypothesis and then go and do all the research against it to, to refine your hypothesis and test it over time. Definitely even like the, that way to begin to solve a problem was a really big component. On a completely different level, the network I have at this point in my life from my time at McKinsey, from my graduate and undergraduate schools, just over the years of those kind of professional educational experiences, you just get this broader network of people that you can then tap into as advisors, as customers, as other, you know, just people who are generally pretty excited to help, especially when you're approaching with something fairly mission driven. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, that's absolutely true. The network is another big piece of it. And, you know, in terms of leveraging that and, um, and thinking about actually thinking about mentorship, Mm -hmm. why do you think that mentorship is the path to getting more women in leadership roles? Uh, You know, I I want to be really clear that I don't think mentorship is the sole path to solving the problem, but I think it's a really pragmatic approach that can make a difference in women's lives one at a time. But if we do it right, can actually really be done at scale as well. And, you know, there are a couple of reasons why I think it is so impactful on women's lives. So even if you just step back and look at academic research in this space, there's now been a few really substantial studies with thousands of mentee and mentor pairs studied against control samples. And it shows that the impact for that in th- those individuals participating is really significant in terms of a five to six X increase in the level of rate of promotions they're getting and pay raises. So just those kind of hard career progression facts. But it also has a really big impact on things like sense of empowerment. So there have been studies done which showing that 90% of women participating in mentoring feel much more empowered to achieve their goals. And so there's you know, those kind of studies which show us the impact. And actually, if you think about it, yes, that's at the women's individual level, but even for companies who are oftentimes going to be the people enabling mentoring, it's really in their interest too, which is a, a nicely a sort of aligned interest where there's much higher levels of retention for people participating in mentoring programs. And even we know now it's a really attractive proposition um, in terms of recruiting, especially when you're looking at millennials and now even the Gen Z population. And then, but when we, when we, one of the reasons we focus on mentoring was like that now we know how impactful it can be. And there's all this anecdotal evidence around it too, but even these academic studies, but when we looked at it with a gendered lens, it was just really broken for women in terms of the things we probably already heard about, like access to mentoring for women is a fundamental problem. But even the seniority of the, when women do have mentors, the seniority of that mentor is typically much less than 
what men's mentors are on average. And we know that that is an important contributing factor to the impact of mentoring. And then the content women get is typically much more focused on these sort of operating style questions as opposed to hard career development, which is what men's tends to focus on. So it just seemed like it was this real advantage people have in their careers if they have access to effective mentoring, yet it was really biased away from helping women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if, so if mentorship isn't, and I, by the way, I love that you said, you know, that you wanted to be clear that you didn't think mentorship was the only path or the only thing that, that would help women get into more leadership roles. If you had to name like one or two other key pieces of the mix besides mentorship, what do you think also needs attention? Well, I mean, the one that screams out loud is all of the unconscious bias mindset work that we know we all need to do. So whether that is, and and I really say we all need to do, this is not a men need to go fix their unconscious biases. We all have them and they exist no matter what you look like, what, what gender or sex you are. And that and the unconscious bias we now know really informs um, recruiting. It informs how promotions are given. It informs performance management reviews in many different places in the workplace that affect women's progression in the workplace. And just to give you a really fine point on an example of why mentoring is not enough. So we had one of our very first clients who, you know, a tech company, pretty innovative company was excited to be first part of our very first pilot and pay us before we even had a product well-defined. It was, it was great. And they put a handful of women, seven or eight through our first year of the program. And these women had an incredible experience. We got feedback from them. Half of them roughly got promotions or pay raises throughout the program And it turns out when we went to do our 12 months sort of review with a company and say, how did it go for you? Um, Do you want to go forward with another cohort? They had done their own survey of their women before and after their program. And they also saw incredible results. So they did a net promoter score. So um, to what extent the women participating would recommend that company to their peers. And that went from a plus 40 to a plus 100 before and after our program for this cohort, which is a pretty incredible outcome, a a sort of people um, intervention. And so we're having these conversations about how great it was. And at the end, the CEO said, yeah, but I'm just not comfortable with, you know, the fact that these women got these promotions and pay raises. And I just put that down to this program and we wouldn't have had to do that if, the, if they hadn't got this mentoring. Mm, wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's not enough for the women to be empowered, for the women to be doing the right things. We also have to look at these more systemic issues and mindsets that, that sit underneath that is, that is still, um, still affecting you know, that's the, to me, that's the glass ceiling. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's really, that's really disturbing uh, to hear that. What have you found? Do you have any specific tools, whether they're, you know, books or exercises or anything that you have personally found helpful in terms of shifting your unconscious bias? I don't, I don't think I've gone on enough of a journey to, to have the answers for you. I mean, in terms of diversity, one of the things that we push pretty hard in our conversations, whether it's directly with, with CEOs and leaders in companies, or frankly, with women younger in their careers who are trying to instill more DNI, is to also look at the business case for it. So this doesn't, I mean, it's not direct, it's not going to change the unconscious bias necessarily, but making sure that we're not always making diversity and inclusion as a sort of pure social justice guilt play. Mm-hmm. We're also really clear of the broader business benefits to this that will help. You know, there's plenty of studies now which show the impact on revenue lifts from having more diversity, both in terms of gender and race. Also, the um, improvement in profit by having 30% of your leadership being female. So, I think supporting some of the stuff that we're doing with 
real business cases helps kind of get around some of those issues that, I mean, there are direct unconscious bias trainings that people can do. In Austin, actually, even the city in Austin has been doing a beyond racism training for anyone in the community that wants to go. And it really gets into these assumptions we have in our own lives. And they're trying to get as many people from the community to go through this. It's a little bit more focused on race being one of the biggest divisive issues in Austin as a city right now. But it's interesting to me to see at the sort of the mayor's office at the city level addressing systemic racism issues with unconscious bias training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is really interesting. I don't even know what Seattle has around those. I don't have to look into that actually. You know, I'm curious because obviously a big part of my interest is the self-care conversation and how that contributes to success. Where do you think self-care fits into the larger conversation about women's leadership? I, I, I don't think you can disentangle it. I think it's one and the same. And actually when we talk about our mission and our objectives with Sarisa, we don't just say it's to help grow more women leaders. We say it's to help women leaders achieve and thrive in positions of leadership. And that's a really important um, distinction. And so all of our mentees going through the program, we have tools up front that help them think much more holistically about not just their career progression, but how satisfied they are with a whole range of topics that you might associate with self-care, whether that is literally their physical health their mental health, the degree to which they feel like there's more personal growth um, they're experiencing, relationship with spouses, a whole range of topics that we ask them to explore before they even get into mentoring. And those topics come up roughly 50-50, the the sort of more personal questions, whether that is around pure self-care or even some of the, the bigger questions around purpose and meaning um, come up about at a rate about 50-50 with the harder sort of professional development career progression topics. Yeah, I love that. I love that that's so um, equal with the other topics. I think that's, I think that's a shift really. Yeah, you know, it might be that because right now we're constantly evolving how we do this, but right now all of our mentors are women. And so I think that to some extent creates a safer space for the younger women to be able to talk about some of those questions and what, what is particularly hard. You know, we, we all know now with all the great research that's been done that women do have this double duty where even in dual income households, they're still doing more than their fair share of the household work. So I think the self-care question, look, look there's plenty of men who burn out and have self-care issues too, but there are some unique aspects to that that I think women typically face in, in the workplace. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. What about you personally? Was there sort of a a turning point in your personal self-care story, so to speak, an experience that kind of woke you up to its importance in your life? Yeah, there's probably two points where it made a big change for me. And and I was pretty low on this score Um, earlier in my career where I'd work every hour that was available and then go play really hard as well. I think the first one was when I was pregnant with my first child. I now have three girls. And Something about pregnancy where you realize the choices you were making for your own body actually were impacting the health of somebody else too, really helped me change some of my perceptions about taking care of even my body and and realizing even for my own sake, in terms of the food I was putting in my body, the amount of alcohol you're putting in your body, the exercise, the sleep, all those things. It was really, it was an interesting shift for me. And it wasn't just because I had that other human being in my body, it helped me made a, make a more fundamental shift. And then sort of following on from that, having children and realizing the importance of the role model you are for your kids and how they see you treat your body. And as I think about what I would want for my girls, 
in how they take care of themselves. If I'm not role modeling that to some extent, then why would I expect them to do it when they're older? But then, you know, perhaps a more fundamental level, I had this odd health scare a couple of years ago, which really was the the driving factor in me then deciding to, to go on and um, launch Cerisa. So I had this odd health scare where I'm totally fine now, spoiler alert. But at the time <laughs> I um, had this really acute, started off as a migraine, but within a few hours I was in the ER and couldn't move my body, didn't understand anything being said to me. Mm. Treat, they actually treated me as if it was a massive stroke. So they gave me the TPA medicine and I had moments of lucidity coming in and out of consciousness and assuming that I was dying and thinking that was how it was all going to end. So when that sort of resolved itself and it ended up being this, what they called a complex migraine, which technically is a diagnosis by exclusion. So they ruled out stroke, seizure, any kind of mass, all these other things, you know, coming out of that and just, it wasn't, it's not, it wasn't like as simple as, oh, I've got another, I've got a second chance, but it was more just realizing being at peace with, we we don't know when life is going to end. It could be tomorrow and I'm at peace with that. Goodness knows, I don't wish that for my kids to grow up without a mother, but I'm at peace with that. Yeah, I also know the more I take care of my body, the more I'm going to be able to do with my life. It will extend my life, but it will also mean that I can show up the way I want to show up. I can be present for my children the way I want to be. I can have energy around, you know, it just, it really gave me a sort of greater clarity around the importance of the choices we're making and what it does even in the near term. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what I'm curious to know specific habits that maybe came out of that experience that you feel like now really contribute to your ability to show up in that way. Number one, sleep. I mean, really, that's the biggest one. Yeah. I I wholeheartedly agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, now they've got neuroscience research showing you the long-term effects of a lack of sleep. But um, before that happened, I for sure would be fine with getting five hours sleep, not like every night, but pretty regularly and just it's fine. I'll keep going. But then as a part of that, I'm working with my neurologist afterwards, just pointing out the importance of, of regular sleep, particularly for migraines and making sure things like this didn't happen again. It, it just, it became kind of non-optional almost. And look, I took a flight home, my flight home from Seattle and I saw you last week, it got delayed and I got into bed at 3am and I got, you know, four hours sleep and it, and it happens and, and I'm totally fine and I can cope with it. But I, on a regular basis, I try to make sure I'm getting seven, at least seven hours sleep. And I like to get more than that if I can. And it's not, it's not a sort of nice to have. It's become a really essential part of, of what I do. You know, I, I always worked out, but still working out is I try and work out five or six days a week. And that's a really important part for me of both being healthy, but also, I don't know, there's something for me about working out where it's kind of the place that I sort through things. And if I go for a run, it's where those tricky things that are going on, conversations at work, difficult business problems that I can just sort through in those times as well. And then be a little bit calmer when I show up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, running and walking is great for for problem solving, I think. Is there, is there anything that you do that you sort of think of as part of that self-care routine, but that maybe wouldn't show up in a book about health and wellness? You know, I, getting the time I need with my children is actually, for me, a really big part of that. I remember reading an article by a woman at an advertising agency in Austin. It was not a normal source of this. And she was reframing the work-life balance question around self versus other care. And she was talking about the importance of taking care of your own needs first, but only so that you can help take care of other people, right? Because the risk is otherwise you you can become this kind of narcissistic on this narcissistic path. And there was something about that and just figuring out the things that are and are not 
draining for you both emotionally, but also spiritually and physically, right? So sleep and exercise for me are, were, you know, primarily physical things, a little bit of emotional. But if I've gone for breakfast with my daughter, I try and take my daughters each one-on-one for breakfast each week. And if I do that and then come to the office at 8.30 rather than 7.45, I feel so much more spiritually whole because I've taken care of those needs of my family that is so important to me that I can then be fully present at work the whole day and not have any, my head's not somewhere else. I'm not worried about what my daughters thought when I walked out of the kitchen at 7.15 and they didn't get to see me or something. So for me, those kind of things are an important part of self-care too. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you draw boundaries with people, you know, or, you know, mostly with people, I guess, when you, when you need to, like, I know that, that a lot of women have a hard time with that when they have identified what they really need, but they're not always comfortable drawing the boundaries that need to happen to allow those things. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough one. And at different points in my life, it showed up differently. So when I first had kids and was still working for McKinsey and working really long hours, I actually, you know, I, I, I put formal structures in place. So I went down to a part-time program and look, I was still working 60, 70 hours a week, but I didn't work on Mondays. And I actually made sure I didn't have a nanny on Mondays so that I had to be with my baby and I could not be doing, you know, there was, it was like physically impossible for me not to have that boundary. And that actually helped a lot. I, you know, as I've now gotten older from there, I, had to, I feel like I can put those boundaries in place without having to have such a hard physical mechanism as a boundary. But actually, it was what, one of the things I was excited about in starting a company was that to actually create a company where we are deliberately creating space for people to have those boundaries. You know, the same way that our mission is to help women thrive in positions of leadership. We want everyone that works for us at Cerisa to feel like they can thrive here. Now, does that mean we're not all working really hard? No, of course not. We're already excited and we're at a startup and we're, and we're working hard, but we're trying to make space for people to, to set their own boundaries. And actually, my co-founder and I talk a lot about if we're doing those things, then we're actually setting a good role model too. So it's important that people on our team see Nicole and I leave the office at 3 p.m. because we're going to go pick up our kid from school or go to a yoga class at lunchtime or come in late because something happened. It's important that we're actually role modeling that it's okay to take care of those needs Look, we still will work at the weekend and do the stuff we need in the evenings or whatever it is. We're all getting the job done, but we're, we're now role modeling that it's okay to set those boundaries too. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's really, really important. And also, you know, another thing I'm starting to see people embrace a little bit more is the recognition that it's not necessarily about the time that you put in. It's, you know, it's, what are you producing? Like, is the, is the end game where you need to be? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you've spent, you know, hundred hours on, I, I know I'm making this up, but it, just the recognition that it's, it's not always about the time. Yeah. And you know, one of, one of the coaches that we work with at Cerisa, who happens to be someone I initially met at McKinsey and she's just, she's just full of wisdom and, and ideas from having coached thousands of people probably at this point. And one thing she talks about that she helps a lot of her clients, actually particularly sort of new leaders in private equity and venture capital back companies, but it's applicable anywhere is to think about a scorecard for your job. So when you start in a new role, you probably got a job description of what they wanted you to do and what skills you needed to bring experience. But how, what, is, what is success going to look like in that, in that job? So what are the things that, how will you be showing up? What kind of things do you have to do? By when? What kind of metrics? So how will you and the people around you know if you're being successful? And I think if those expectations are really clear, it really helps with what you're saying because 
it's no longer about are you putting in the hours? It's more about are you delivering what we've all said on this scorecard um, needs to be done. Yeah, that's really that's really good advice. So as we're kind of coming to a close, I'm wondering if you have any advice for women who are looking for a mentor. Where should they start? What should they do first? Yeah, we, we obviously spend a lot of time thinking about this. You know, I think the three things I would say is number one, do some work on yourself first. You know, I think a lot of people are a little bit lost or they have a vague question or something they kind of want to work on. And so they go try and find a mentor. But without having done the work first around, okay, let me step back and just reflect on what are the challenges I'm facing? What are my goals? What questions do I actually have? So we, you know, at Cerisa, we make our mentees go through a two-month pretty rigorous um, assessment and aspiration phase and work with an executive coach to do all of that. But people can do that themselves, but just really spend that time to figure out why do you even want to mentor? What, what are you trying to get out of it? The second thing is when you are trying to find mentoring. Now, it might be that you're, it comes within your company, right? And often that ends up looking like sponsoring and it evolves partly because you're doing a really good job and someone sort of latches onto you and they want to help you. But oftentimes people are looking for a mentor a little bit outside of those natural sort of organic relationships. And what I see quite a bit is someone telling me, oh my gosh, I reached out to all these senior women, asking if they'd mentor me and not one of them even replied to me. Mm. And it's just this funny thing. I think if I got an email out of the blue from someone I'd never met before saying, will you mentor me? It's just a slightly odd question. Mm -hmm. So what Mm -hmm. we recommend is finding a way to add value before asking for something. So if you've figured out what you want to work on, you know what your goals are, and you've, you've, found, you've, you, you've researched a woman that you think, or, or a man, anyone that you think is going to be really helpful to you, what is it you could offer to them? Are they working on a project that you could help, help out on for a little bit, even if it's something in their community work that you'd love to help out with and, and sort of over time ask them if they would then mind spending a bit of time with you on stuff you're working on? And I think a little bit of that reciprocity that actually is a, more, is a trait more naturally understood and followed by men than women is a, it's a much better way to start a relationship and seek mentoring. The third thing I'd just say is to, to make sure that you're using your mentor's time really wisely. So it's one thing to know what your goals are, but people just don't, don't think to send something to the mentor in advance. So like send them, a, a, you know, not like a 10 page document that they have to do research on, but send an email with, you know, here's what's going on. Here's, I know this is your background and I've done some research on you on this, but here's the three questions I'd really like to dig into with you. And it shows that you're well prepared. You're really being respectful of their time and it helps them show up and be more prepared to really actually bring you the insights that you're looking for. Absolutely. Yes. That's so how I can just speak on, you know, to, on be, being on the mentor side of things, how helpful that is when, yeah. when it's very clear what the, what the frame of the conversation is going to be. Yeah. Yeah, as opposed to those awkward coffee conversations where the person's like, I don't really know what what I want from you. Someone just said I should meet you. (laughs) Right. It's very hard to help in those scenarios. Yeah. 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 So where can people find you or connect with you online? Yeah, I mean, people can always reach out to us at Teresa.com. We also have our Instagram handle, but just on our Teresa.com, we also have our blog on there uh, where there's more information about us. And you can reach out to us at info at Teresa.com. Great. I'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Anna. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's been a fun conversation. 
That's it for this week's episode of Women on the Rise. If you're ready now to wake up with the energy, clarity, and confidence to take on your goals, visit lauradolch.com slash women on the rise to get a few resources I pulled together just for Women on the Rise listeners. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit lauradolch.com slash podcast. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. It's a huge help to the show and I truly appreciate it. This episode was produced by me with editing help from Dave Nelson at Lens Group Media. Oh,